Welcome to the Digital Transformation of Business podcast, brought to you by Hughes On. Good afternoon and welcome to this episode of Digital Transformation. I'm here with my good friends, Mr. Curtis Campbell. Hello. Mr. Chuck Keeler. Hello, how are you? Awesome, awesome. And uh, it's a fantastic day here. And uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about organizational health. Uh, when you go through a transformation, any kind of change, um, obviously you want to have a strong and healthy culture. And I want to take a quick second to shout out um, Chief Executive Magazine and their online property um, gave us some of the ideas that, that uh, we're going to use here. Uh, one of their editors, Dan Bigman, interviewed Patrick Lencioni, and uh, we got a lot of the talking points and ideas from that article. So we want to say thanks to Dan for a terrific article written in September of 2018, and to obviously Patrick Lencioni for some of the feedback and things that he got. So with that introduction, gentlemen, organizational health. What does it mean? What do you think? What are you talking about? I'll kick things off, and and uh, you know I'm I'm still relatively young in my career, but I'm I'm gonna say I had never really heard the term organizational health, and so the more and more I dug into this article, and the more I started researching this concept, it's really just uh, the concept of culture, but culture within an organization, and when it's a good culture, that obviously yields or is the foundation upon good organizational health, and so this this I mean this article and you know Patrick's expertise is just packed with ways to you know, why it's so critical to have good organizational health. Well, I think it's like a lot of things uh, in the world. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about employee engagement. Why employee engagement? Why does it matter? Why is it important? Let's get down to some of the how-tos, right? Let's get into saying, okay, uh, you know, I want to have a strong culture. I've talked about it for 100 days. Now what I want to do is I want to talk about uh, how do I, what do I do? How do I implement it? What do I do? You know, one of the, one of the things that uh, I took right out of the top of this article was the, the concept that, hey, listen, don't hide your um, poor corporate health or poor culture behind perks like, you know, infinity pools and, you know, bringing your dog to work and having, you know, I think somewhere in the article here he says something about how many thousands of foosball tables have been sold in the name of corporate culture. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. It's, it, it, coming out of college, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, that, that was the thing that I think a lot of young millennials kind of aspired to. I think amenities are important. I think that you need to offer certain amenities. Uh, today we were talking about the our love for the ice machine down the hall and uh, the the different kind of services and amenities around the building that really actually do lend to a better work environment. Um, so I don't I don't know if I have anything against the the ways to relax and the fun things that people put in the offices. But the article talks about how, hey, we're going to see right through it. If you're if you're doing this just to get me to live here at the office, I'm going to grow tired really quickly of these things. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's exactly what you just said. You know, somewhere in here it talks about, you know, when a CEO brings in dinner to kind of mask over the fact that he's expecting you to work late into the hours of the evening. Sure, it might be nice because you might be starving and you might be trying to meet a deadline, but I wouldn't I wouldn't think that a, a, a organization that expects people to do that on a regular basis is a healthy one because people do need a work-life balance. As you get into the meat of the article, it starts to talk about how some of these things are um, masks, you know, like we've been saying, they're, they're hiding an underlying problem. But then also the fact that, oh, well, I need to relax um, or I need to have this is also a symptom of an actual problem. He was asked 
uh, in your days at Bain, did you see a lot of companies that failed because of executive mistakes or miscues or of some kind of a product failure? And his comment was, no, what, uh, what you typically see is you just see your standard human flaws at, at the leadership roles primarily, but it, it spreads down through, and that is that there was greed, there was mistrust, there was a lack of cohesion, all these different things that you need to be healthy were lacking, and therefore the organization failed. And I actually saw it towards the end of the article, he made a comment about if you have a healthy organization, you will be resilient. And as I read that, I thought, exactly, it's the human body. You know, if you're healthy, you can go into an unhealthy place or, a, you know, a place where, where sickness abounds and you'll survive because your body is resilient. Um, he was, that was, that was kind of a, a strange walk there, but he was talking about a company that he had worked with who improved their corporate culture and their, and their health. And then the industry that they were in went through a downturn they were able to simply focus in, get smart, and they survived the downturn because they had a healthy culture, they had a healthy organization. Well, and I think at the top of any healthy organization, too, there's a good, healthy, a good, healthy CEO. You know, one of the things that, I, that struck me was this concept of good CEOs, typically you've never even heard of. You know, they're, they're not ones that have, you know, a big social media presence. They're not one that are big on the speaking circuit. They're so focused on fixing and maintaining what's going on internally. This same article, you know, goes into depth of Walmart. They have CEOs that eat in a cafeteria with everyone else. They don't have a executive cafeteria that serves better food. I think I think you touched on two things there that I kind of want to comment on, Curtis. The first one is um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, and I know you didn't mean it like this, but it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a senior executive who is well known because it can help your brand. It can help get your message out there. However. If that's all the executive is, is a, you know, uh, uh, a celebrity, then, then you, you do have a problem. But I think you absolutely want somebody who has a strong social media presence and who is sharing the message of your organization on a routine basis. The second thing you touched on there at the end is the minute, the minute your organization begins to categorize people or you know, what I call cast up, C-A-S-T-E, then you, you, you've, got a dying, you've got a dying animal right there because there is absolutely no reason in the world for someone because of the role they play in the company to eat in a different cafeteria or to have access to different benefits. And I'll even, you know, touch the third rail and that's compensation people are compensated at an organization based on their value contribution to that organization. In my mind, it is entirely possible, entirely possible for a member of the organization to out-earn the CEO of that organization in any given year simply because of some value con they contributed, uh, you know, whether it's in a sales role, a marketing role, a product development role, whatever. If they just hit the home run that year, there's no reason why they can't be out, you know, just because I'm at the top of the org chart doesn't mean I'm entitled to be paid the most or compensated at the highest level. Oh, I think that the the issue of the mask is that if something is done with the right intentions for the right reason to really benefit the 
the workforce, the employees, something that, you know, a perk, something that makes them happy, gives them a, an out, an option to relax. That's okay. But when they are used to mask a deeper problem, when they are used to cover up something that's severely unhealthy, then that's the problem. So if you want to have 10 trampolines in your lobby, that may be okay for your, your workforce, for your organization. If that's trying to cover up the fact that your managers are jerks, then maybe not so okay. Masking and covering up and doing some things, you know, in the article it talks about the company, I, I, I assume you pronounce it Theranos? Theranos? Theranos, yeah. Yeah, Theranos. Here, here went a, a bright and talented Stanford student, uh, the young lady, who got an idea and she went out and she took on the, you know, a particular persona. Some say she was trying to emulate Steve Jobs a little bit or what have you. But she pied pipered people into investing. But when the smart people working there started to realize that the, the this blood testing product wasn't working, it wasn't going to work, and that the there was a flaw in the underlying um, product, they she would fire them and put them under some very ridiculous restrictive non-disclosures and things to hide the problem you know to mask the problem meanwhile they continued to raise money and uh you know raised 400 500 million dollars had a valuation of nine billion dollars it was a it was a case study in unhealthy just unhealthy and and it's too bad too because i think the original premise the idea of making something fairly traumatic in the healthcare industry better was great, but I, I I just don't think they were prepared to deal with product setbacks when the product wasn't working the way you know it was originally invented or in, in envisioned to work. You know, they talk about CEOs; they can be super impactful, they can be super well known, and they can be you know they can be for that matter be a great leader. But if they don't have the trust of their own people, your organization's destined for failure. And uh, you know, and talking about that, I think there's there's two. There's two types of leaders. Um, there's those who view their role, okay, whether you know they've been they've been promoted or put into a role as a reward for the years that they've put in, the work that they have done, uh, or some other behavior. But they view it as a reward. And then there's those who view it as a new and added responsibility, and the latter is going to be successful because the previous will feel entitled. Well, I, I have this because of what I have done. I'm entitled to perks. I'm entitled to a private lunch. I'm entitled to these different things. Whereas the second, the second example, oh my goodness, I'm now responsible for not only my own work, but the work of these other individuals. And I'm responsible for the livelihood of hundreds of people. The article gives a comparison to professional football players, and it's it's a great comparison. You work really hard to get to the NFL, and then you can either say, oh, I've made it, I've got all the money, got the fame, got what I wanted, now it's time to enjoy the game and relax. Or you can say, hey, the game is going to be harder than ever. I've got to work harder than I've ever worked before. The athlete who is given a contract for millions and millions of dollars and says, okay, I have to perform at this level now, I'm going to go and you know, spend that much more time training, preparing, and, and getting ready, will have so much more impact on the game and have so much better a career 
than the individual who says, you know, I've worked very, very hard to get where I am, which they all have. You know, if you if you are taken into any of the, you know, major pro leagues, you've accomplished something pretty tremendous. But if that's the point that you say, now I'm going to sit back and enjoy these perks, it's it's too bad because you're probably giving up just that much more. You know, I think a good leader that has the trust of his organization is someone that can, quote, tap into the intelligence and the experience and the talent of the people within an organization. Oh, yeah. And I, I really, really like the concept. I, I, I truly, truly agree with the point that was made in here about people who are hitching their wagon, if you will, to the, to the rising star, um, you know, think, talking about leaders. Um, I sat down, I was thinking about that, and I made a note to myself that says, there are leaders that you will hit your wagon to because they're a rising star, and then there are leaders who you will follow because they're trusted. And, and I would much rather be that latter leader. I would rather have a group of individuals who like working with me because they trust me and they know that when I sit down and think about direction and when I think about the decisions that have to be made, I'm thinking of it in terms of I'm responsible for a whole lot of people, not how can I make this benefit me the most. So I, I, I really think that it's important that when you're looking at an organization, and, and Patrick Lincini says, you know, if he's brought into a company to kind of evaluate how they're doing, one of the first things he does is sit down in a leadership meeting and watch the dynamic amongst the leaders. And if they're not passionately working with each other, he, he said they don't have to agree 100% with each other. But if they are passionately working together to get the best outcome, that's a healthy company. Yeah, he said they don't have to be at their throats, but they're, if they're bored, quiet, and there's no emotion in that meeting, he said that's a sign of a bigger issue, right? Oh, yeah. No, if they're, and, and anybody who's witnessed me at my finest knows that, uh, that I, I'm all about the passion. If you don't feel passion for the business, get out. If you if you can't if you can't get yourself emotionally stirred up about the business that you're in and want and want to do the best that you possibly can for it, then you you shouldn't be leading and you probably shouldn't be in the business at all. He mentions Alan Mulally of Ford. Yeah, he says that when he came into Ford to kind of turn things around, he said that during meetings people would look at their phones. He would just stop the meeting and look at them and say, "What are you doing? We're making decisions here." And yeah. so that supports this idea of having meaningful meetings and that the meetings are a sign of the bigger problem or the bigger success of the organization. And, of course, that's his style. It might not be everybody's style, but... Well, yeah, I mean, on that same point, I mean, he, he even talks about how, you know, treating grown adults like fifth graders, you know, but he, he honestly says that grown-ups are just big kids, you know, and if, they're, if their attention is elsewhere, you know, and I think it's kind of funny that you actually were mentioning that while I was looking at my phone but you know it's 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 kind of funny because you know if you're if you're looking at your phone or you're doing something else you're not actively contributing to a healthy decision well I, I yes if you can't focus then you know I meetings you guys know this we've said it before meetings are a pet peeve of mine um, they're necessary you have to get together and you have to collaborate but meetings for the sake of meetings just just are an insanity for me and if you're come to a meeting and you don't have respect enough to pay attention if you're um, you know looking at your phone or, or reading other notes and things like that why are you even there get out I mean Jobs was famous for saying to people why are you here well I come to the you know, get out you you have nothing to contribute uh, 
and there wasn't he didn't even wait for him to look at the yet to be discovered iPhone you know <laughs> he just said you have your your role your position your input is not needed in this meeting get back to your desk and work you know um, I have a I have a really hard time with people who meet for the sake of meetings and you know have they feel like that's what they come to work to do is to have meetings uh, I think meetings are a necessary tool to collaboration and creativity but I think they have to be so properly managed and uh, and 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 run so that they benefit you know in the one of the previous podcasts we talked about the uh, digital achievers right yes can you imagine if you gathered that group of digital achievers together and said okay I need you men and women to help me solve this problem and you look around the room three of them are looking at their phones you're saying, well, you're obviously, you don't care enough to be here. And it's a two-way street. The individual's in the meeting and the individual calling or organizing the meeting, right? Don't have a one-hour meeting that only needs to be 15 minutes. So perhaps the meeting organizer really bears the, the bulk of the responsibility, right? Or is that, is that backwards? No, completely, completely agree. If, if, I know, if I know when I come to your meeting, Chuck, first of all, that it's starting on time. And second of all, if we solve the issues at hand in 15 minutes, we're leaving the conference room. I'm much more energized. I might leave my phone at my desk because I know we're going to get in, we're going to go to work, and we're going to get done, and I'll be back to my desk. It's that idea that, oh, you know, I'm going in there, they're going to spend the first 15 minutes catching up on the gossip, or they're going to do this while they wait for so-and-so who's always late. Yeah. Uh, if you know all that going in, you bring your phone to entertain yourself, then that's a poorly organizing. I do. I put it on the organizer of the meeting. Absolutely. We recently made a video that talks about different tips and tricks to have more successful meetings. And, and one of them was preparation. It says, hey, if you are prepared as an organizer and you provide necessary information to the group before the meeting starts, they will come into the meeting more prepared. The meeting itself will be more prepared. And then, like you said, do not be afraid to end the meeting when you're done. When you're done early. This is... This is health. This is, this is like exercise for the body, only for the company. Teach yourself the discipline to run a meeting in an organized fashion and with the purpose of getting done what you're there to do. Now, there are meetings that necessarily need to be 90 minutes long. Okay, The, the topic is deep, and, and, and we have to have good, healthy, open debate and conversation and everything. So I'm not saying only good, the only good meetings are 15-minute meetings. What I'm saying is know what you want to accomplish, stay focused on it. Again, going back to the Digital Achievers episode, we talked about that in staying focused, right? When you go in there and you write on the grease board, hey, this is the problem we're assembled to solve, don't let it grow tentacles. Don't let it try to solve this and that and the other as well. Stay focused on what you came to solve. In the meetings, stay focused on what you came to solve. Don't try to collapse two meetings into one if the topics are not together. It, you know, Don't try to accomplish two different things in the same meeting if they're diversely different because you'll have half the audience waiting and half the audience engaged, or somehow you won't have two different ones. And I'll say this again because I want to say this as often and as loud as I possibly can. Respect the fact that you can't have a one-hour meeting back-to-back. You can't have two one-hour meetings that both go 61 minutes and be on time to both meetings. You have to get up. You have to leave the conference room. You might have to take a bio break, and you're not going to be on time, or you're going to be collapsing your laptop. And what I consider to be one of the rudest things in the world is to say, well, I've got another meeting I've got to go to. What you're saying to the room that you're in right now is, 
you individuals do not matter enough to me to stay until the end. I've got to go to something else that's more interesting to me. Okay. So this comes into meeting organizers and being um, realistic. I can't have back-to-back meetings. I'm trying right now, and I am not perfect at it yet, but I am trying right now to say if it's a 30-minute meeting, I'm going to plan to be done at 25, and if it's a one-hour meeting, I'm going to try to be done at 45 to 50 minutes. And I've gone so far as to for meetings that might normally get booked as one hour on the calendars, I'm booking them 45 minutes. Just, just, I'm just saying at you know, 45 minutes we're going to end because I'm going to acknowledge that you have other things on your calendar, and I'm going to give you a buffer in there. If I possibly can. Sorry if that sounded soapbox and passionate, but that's just <laughs> one of my things. You know, as part of this article, it, it talks about oh, what will he- organizational health do for our organization? And the answer is everything. It's going to permeate everything that you do. Your decision structure, how people do their work, how people choose to take vacations, everything. It's going to permeate everything. I have a, <clears throat> I have a collection of five questions that I read some, some time ago, and I've seen them recently. Um, in some Twitter posts in different places. I think Dan Rockwell on Twitter recently reshared them, uh, and they just hit home to me. And I take these five questions, and if you use them in your planning, if you use them in your um, organizing for anything, whether it's a new product development or a meeting, and they, you, will, you will find that you have a better experience. And I'll just go through them real quickly. What is our mission? Who is our customer? What does the customer value? What are our results? And what is our plan? If you took those five questions and had them on a laminated index card in your pocket, and every time you sat down to organize something, if you laid that on your desk, I promise you, you'll do better. You really will. If you ask, what is our mission? What is our objective? What are we trying to accomplish? What are we trying to solve? If you ask, who is our customer? Who's the person we are trying to benefit? If you ask, what is that customer going to value? Because I'm going to sit down and make something better for an individual or a category of individuals, but they don't care about that. Well, it's a waste of time. So what is that customer value? Then what are the results, right? What Declare declare success. What, what will define success? And then what is our plan? How are we going to get there? I just think those five questions are clarifying. That's something that would be really important to uh, to, to be part of your organizational health plan. I mean, you've got these, just like the human body, you have to exercise every day. You have to eat a healthy diet. Those things right there could be really part of that healthy diet of a healthy organization. I hate to keep gleaning quotes from this incredible article, but there's one thing that really struck me, kind of just summarizing what both of you just said, and it's, and it's talking about, so I'm just going to read the quote. It says, so it's kind of like if my wife and I are doing well in our marriage, we have four boys and things are going really well. That's when we should say, hey, let's go away and really understand why we're doing well and recommit to that. If you, if you all of a sudden have a circus that you're trying to manage, that all the animals are out of their pens and they're, and you're, okay, now let's try and figure out how to solve this. No, I love that part too, because so often we focus on how we're going to be healthy, but when we are healthy and things are working we need to focus on remembering that, kind of pinning down what works, what doesn't work. What do we do to get here? Let's not forget that. Let's, let's be able to get here time and time again. You know, you look at a business who does some big digital transformation activity or initiative or something like that, and it works really, really well. They sh- that's the perfect time that they should be saying, hey, why did this succeed? What did we do so well? So in this article, uh, Patrick Lencioni 
was asked a few questions, and one of them was, do we overcomplicate business? And so in all this stuff we're talking about, I think there's a, that big risk of overcomplicating the process. Too many rules, too many procedures to get healthy. And he says, oh gosh, absolutely. Speaking of overcomplicating business. And he said, there are three reasons people reject simple solutions. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to go through those three because they're, they're really great. Uh, number one, he says, I call this sophistication bias. I want something that's really sophisticated and sexy. It's like, I lost weight. How did I do it? I ate less and I exercised more. And then he says, nobody's finding that interesting. So we have the tendency to want something, like he says, sexy or sophisticated, flashy. Uh, you know, I, as, you, as you read that, um, I'm brought to the, the, the thought of when you do employee training, and specifically when you do sales training, hey, this is the new thing that we're going to do this year. We're going to fill out a blue sheet, and then we're going to evaluate the customer, and then we're going to go and do these different things. And every year there's this new, very complicated, very involved process when at the end of the day to sell something you need to find someone who has a need and for whom your product, your service, your solution solves that need. It's, it's that simple. But no, 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 no. I want this process so that I can be involved in this process that doesn't necessarily get down to the core aspect, but it makes me feel busy. It makes me feel like I'm doing things. Now, of course, this doesn't take away anything from professionality or doing things well. Uh, I think he's saying, hey, sometimes if the right solution isn't sexy enough, it's not going to be adopted. And there's a flaw there sometimes the right solution isn't going to be super sophisticated like he says come back to the whole you know my my soapbox on meetings who's going to be the first one to say you know what no 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 we're not going to we're not talking about that in this meeting this is this meeting is staying focused okay we're we're just going to focus and do the things that we need to well we're all here together and we could do this and we could and we could and we could yes we could but we're not we're staying focused focus and discipline you know, he uses the weight loss. It's the same same exact thing. If you can't focus on eating and exercising and having the discipline to do it as needed, you won't lose weight. If you can't focus and discipline yourself to do the things that you need to to be successful in your, you know, your career and your, your assignments and not just meetings, but in general, come to work. Today I need to do the following five things. End of the day, I got started on the first thing, and then I let myself get distracted, and I did two other things that weren't really that important, and I didn't do any of the five things that were important to me. Focus and discipline. I know that feeling. Uh, the second way that he says simple solutions are not adopted, he calls this the adrenaline bias. That's, I want something to work right now. No solution that flips a switch and changes right away works. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll tell you, I mean, from my experience, especially when it comes to this digital transformation, it's like if you put something or launch some major initiative, you can't expect that overnight it's going to solve all your problems. But that's what people want, right? That's well, the bias that's what that he's they talking want. about. Yeah. We want, hey, we want to double revenue this quarter by doing this one thing. That's yeah. sexy. That's, that's appealing. Easy. But to your point, Curtis, and to the point of this article, no solution that flips a switch and changes right away works. It may not take that long, but it's not going to work overnight. I think it goes back to something my dad taught me as a kid, and that was when you're given something that you didn't have to work for, you don't appreciate it, 
you're you're not as bought into it. And I think that that's part of what's being said right there is if you just flip a switch, you know, if I can take a pill and lose weight, I'll gain the weight back because I can just take a pill and lose the weight again. I won't adjust my lifestyle. And I think lifestyle, I, I keep coming back to this very, very tight analogy between healthy organization, healthy body kind of alignment, right? And I'm the last person to be talking about healthy bodies. But um, if you treat, if you train yourself as a professional to do these things in a focused and disciplined manner, you're going to see yourself, your team, your organization move forward and stay moving forward. Yeah, so that's the adrenaline bias. The third one is quantification bias. He says, when I worked at Bain Consulting, people would say, isolate all the variables and tell me exactly what the ROI of doing this one thing is. Yeah, it, 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 it says in the article, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work way. that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we do this all the time. I have, working on you know the, the tactical marketing business development side of the world, Tippett's, you, you said this in the sales meeting two years ago, Trying to get a sales rep to maybe add something, some new tool to their bag sometimes can be very difficult because they want to know right out of the gates, what's the ROI I can use to justify this, right? But some of the products that we sell at Hughes are, you know, the ROI is defined very differently. Uh, they can be in a very emotional sale or they can be a tactical sale or they can be a qualitative sale or a quantitative sale. But we, especially the ones that are emotional, are very, very hard to define the ROI. And so it's you can't. It's impossible just to isolate all the variables and say this will be the ROI. Sometimes you just flat out have to take a leap of faith. Yeah, this quantification bias leaves out that human element, and he makes a really good point about that. That no failure of any company is 100% based on uh, doing something tactically wrong, or you're always going to have the human decision making that's going to contribute. You're always going to have human leadership, the human intuition, things that cannot be quantified so easily. I was thinking as you read that definition there about the quantification bias, you know, isolate the variables, show me the ROI. If I was a corporate doctor coming in, kind of like what Mr. Lincini is uh, for companies, you come in and you see that the diagnosis analysis paralysis. They're going to spend all their time trying to get down to the final detail and prove that without a doubt this is going to work. And I think, Curtis, what you were referring to that I've said in the past is leaders have to look at the choice, and every decision is a choice. One, two, four, eight different items, but it's a choice. We're going to do this, and they have to use the data and the information they get from their team, their people, their, their trusted advisors. They have to use their own personal experience and then they have to make a choice. And sometimes they're wrong. And the people that admit it and move on, you know, we've talked about it in previous episodes, fail fast. But at the end of the day, the leaders make a choice as informed as they possibly can. And you have to just move. You got to go, especially in today's age. Well, it's been a healthy discussion. And I think the message that I'll kind of sign off with is this. Transformation is going to happen within your organization. It may happen in large chunks at various times. It may happen every week on small projects. But if you have a healthy organization, you will be able to move through those transformations with ease and with power. And with that, I thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend. And if you didn't enjoy it, send us a note. Thanks very much. 